0: This is Central Coast Public Radio KUSP Santa Cruz, streaming and podcasting at KUSP.org. And it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. robert polly here with the seventh avenue project and today on the show life by the numbers a rebroadcast of my 2008 conversation with physicist jeffrey west he'll describe some surprisingly simple mathematical rules that he says may explain everything from the length of our lives to the health of our cities stay tuned Jeffrey West was for many years a particle physicist. He studied the basic building blocks of matter at Los Alamos National Labs in New Mexico. But in the mid-1990s, he began to wonder if the kind of mathematical universals we see in physics, you know, like Newton's laws of motion and Einstein's equations of relativity, might have some counterpart in the biological world. In other words, is there an E equals mc squared for microbes and mice and men? Well, West is now president of the Santa Fe Institute, where thinkers from many disciplines converge to tackle big problems in science and other fields. And he and his colleagues believe they've worked out some of the mathematics of life. If not a biological theory of everything, theirs is certainly a theory of many things. It attempts to explain a huge range of phenomena across a multitude of species. West thinks his equations may even help answer the age-old question, that first got him thinking about biology more than a decade ago.
1: Why is it that if you are a human being, that is a mammal of roughly the, the, our size, why is it that you're destined to live of the order of a hundred years and not a thousand years or a million years or only ten years? What sets the scale of life and how in the hell is that scale of a hundred years connected to the molecular time scales? which, after all, the timescales associated with the complex molecules of metabolism or the complex molecules of our genes, which are different timescales.
0: Well, let's back up, and we'll work our way up to the big question of why we die at a certain age, why we have a finite and fairly predictable lifespan. But let's back up. And, um Talk about something that really shows how a physicist might approach biology, and that is the subject of scaling laws. Physics is full of laws. Biology doesn't really have that many strict mathematical laws. You've been developing some laws that really sound like physics applied to living
1: things. What is a scaling law? So let's go back to that aging, because that's a good point of departure for this. There is an astonishing fact, and that is the scaling of lifespan, meaning the following, that if the piece of tissue that was me, that happens to be I'm holding my hand at the moment, this piece of tissue here, which happens to be my hand, if that piece of tissue had been a mouse, it would have been dead after two or three years. If it stayed in the mouse. If it stayed in the mouse. If it were the mouse. So this is a (laughs) typical physicist thought experiment. However, if removed from the mouse
0: and put in a tissue culture, you know, uh, it's possible but to make it live longer. It would live longer,
1: it's exactly. Yeah. So, it, it's, so what happens to tissue is, quote, scale-dependent. That is, it depends upon um, whether it's part of a mouse, whether it's part of um, a, a rat, a dog, a human being, a gorilla, a giraffe, an elephant, or a whale, even though all of those organisms I talked about are mammals and they are made of the same stuff, yet the behavior of the tissue in them is different. And and a scaling law is um, a law that tells you how a particular physiological variable, lifespan we were talking about a moment ago, changes uh, with the organism that it's in. And in changes with size. With, and in particular with its size. And typically we measure size by its mass.
0: Mm-hmm, how heavy it is. Now, I remember back to, I think maybe high school biology, and certainly introductory college biology, there was a very simple scaling law I think we were taught, and people still probably are, which is the ratio of surface area to Mm -hmm. volume. This is a function of basic geometry. If you take an object and you make it bigger, the amount of surface area relative to the amount of interior, the volume, decreases. So you've got less outside, more inside. Little things have more outside, less inside. And this, we were taught, has some serious ramifications. Um, For instance, um, little things give off a lot more heat because they've got more skin exposed to the elements. They have to, therefore, consume more calories, work harder, run at a faster burn rate, and maybe that's why they die sooner. What do you think of that old-fashioned scaling
1: law? Well, it has elements of it that are uh, absolutely correct and others that are... Not so correct. Let me put it that way. Um, And so let me use that example that you gave, again, to just just make a couple of points. The first is that that scaling law, namely that the surface area increases slower with size than does the volume that Mm -hmm. it contains – uh, is, is, is as you point out the most elementary and fundamental law it 's called geometric scaling, and it was already discovered by Galileo in uh, four, maybe five hundred years ago and uh, Galileo um, one of the remarkable things that Galileo realized about that scaling law, which is very profound, um, he realized that um, the the strength of say a limb your legs. Or the, the strength of a tree trunk, or the strength of a pillar holding up a building, actually only depends upon an, its cross sectional area of the beam, like so a two by four. Mm-hmm. Two, the strength of a two by four piece of wood, two inches by four inches, depends on the cross sectional area that two by four mm-hmm. and does not depend upon its length mm-hmm. so that as you scale it up. Mm -hmm. it scales up like the surface area it scales up slower than the weight that it has to support Ah. so if you try to take a given design of animal or a given building and scale it up keeping the shape the same what galileo realized was something extraordinary that the strength of the beams the limbs holding up the organism or the building scale less fast than the weight they have to hold up, so ah. that eventually that weight, as you get bigger and bigger, overwhelms the strength of the beams holding I it up, see. and it collapses. Which so, is
0: why we see these nice slender uh, saplings. Exactly. That when we see big mature trees, they're, they're thick, big trunk. fat trunks. Yeah.
1: Or think of an elephant's fat legs relative to a mouse's tiny limbs in terms of their uh, the radius, say, of their uh, legs. Yeah. And of course, engineering. Mm-hmm relies very heavily on these kinds of questions because uh, architects and architectural engineers understand those rules and shapes of buildings or change of materials are what you use to address those kinds of the constraints of scaling laws. Right. So we've
0: got some very old scaling laws elaborated Mm -hmm. way back when by Galileo, um, but you've taken this some steps further.
1: Yes. So... The observation is that if you look at... So we talked about some very simple ones here. But if you look at ones that are very uh, fundamental about biology... So, for example, one of the most fundamental is something called metabolic rate. That is the amount of energy you have to take in, any organism has to take in per second to stay alive. Mm -hmm. That's called metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact... The 2,000 food calories per day on the side of your Kellogg's Corn frakes, uh is your metabolic rate. More or less. More or less. Yeah. And uh, you can ask, how does metabolic rate scale with size yes. across all organisms? Mm-hmm. Well, let's first think about mammals, because we, we talked about them earlier. Um, what was discovered already many years ago by a man named Max Kleiber was that metabolic rate – scales non-linearly with size so let me explain what i mean by that you might have expected uh, naively that if you doubled the size of an organism you would double its metabolic rate because you've doubled the number of cells so you double the number of cells you would expect to put double the amount of energy in to keep it going
0: sure that's linear
1: that's called linear behavior exactly what kleiber discovered was that, in fact, it's not linear. It scales less than linearly, meaning the bigger you are, the less energy is needed per gram, per pound, to keep the organism alive. And um, the law that he discovered is the so-called three-quarters power law, and that's a mathematical statement that uh, can be illustrated by the following That if I increased the weight by 10,000, by a factor of 10,000, so one followed by four zeros, as I said, naively, you would expect the amount Mm -hmm. of energy, the metabolic rate, to also Mm -hmm. increase by Mm 10,000. But in fact, that's not true. What actually happens is you only need a thousand times as much energy, one followed by three zeros. So you increase by, so you need a tenth. Yeah. So the it you increase by ten thousand one followed by four zeros, you only need one thousand one followed by three zeros, and that's called a three quarters power, and that's where the three fourths come from. I so see. it's non-linear, and it is an expression of the great uh, of an economy of scale: the greater efficiency with size, the bigger you get.
0: Big animals process uh, <clears throat> calories more efficiently.
1: Yes. You are more efficient than your dog, but your horse is more efficient than you.
0: But this is not the same as what was predicted by that surface no. area to volume ratio. So
1: the surface area to volume would have been two thirds, mm-hmm. it turns out. Two because areas when you think of an area two by two, for example, double. Goes up, as, double, the s- it goes as, a up as the square, whereas the volume oh. goes up as the cube. Exactly. And so the analogue to the three quarters would have been the two thirds, and that was not observed. And perhaps what is more intriguing is that when biologists looked at a myriad of such variables, I mean, things from uh, how does heart rate change with size? How does lifespan that we talked about earlier change with size? How do uh, detailed things like rates of diffusion of oxygen across various surfaces in the lung, how do they change with size? Um, how does the radius of an aorta change with size, the radius of a tree trunk? anything you could think of across all kinds of organisms from down to within the cell to up through multicellular organisms to ecosystems. What was discovered was that there are these similar kinds of scaling laws pervade all of biology. They're all three-quarter In, laws? They're not three-quarters, but the analog to the three-quarters is always something times a quarter. Times There's a quarter. always a simple quarter. So, for example, let me give you a simple example, if uh, one that is easy to relate to, the uh, heart rate, one's heart rate, um, that decreases with size, um, as what is what we call what mathematicians call a quarter power. Meaning, if you increase the size of the organism, the weight of the organism, by a factor of ten thousand, so one followed by Four zeroes, then the heart rate decreases by only one factor of ten okay that's one followed by just one zero mm-hmm. and uh that is called a one quarter power law I okay. see that's the one followed by one zero mm-hmm. that's the one relative to increasing the size by a factor of ten thousand one followed mm-hmm. by four zeros mm-hmm.
0: the, the The upshot <clears throat> is that when you go from, say, a mouse to an elephant, the heart rate slows, and it slows proportional to the mass as a function of this one-quarter quarter
1: power. power. And in fact, the extraordinary observation is that essentially all rates, all rates associated with life, decrease in a similar way. Mm. So, um, as I say, rates of heartbeats uh, rates of turnover of biochemical processes within your cell, rates of diffusion of processes across membranes inside mm-hmm. your body, rates at which you evolve, and now we're talking about timescales of maybe hundreds of thousands and certainly hundreds of millions of years. Years. Those also decrease with size according to the same one-quarter power mm-hmm,
0: law. Mm-hmm. So, so. If you're small, live <coughs> fast, die young, evolve faster. If you're big, move slower, live longer, right. evolve more slowly. Exactly. Everything pace slows of life,
1: down. pace of life slows down with size in a systematic way. Um, across all of life, and we can and, see
0: this when we look at, say, a squirrel darting around. Exactly. Uh, compare it to uh, an elephant or a whale, sort of going along at a leisurely pace. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And and I should say one. I want to add one cautionary caveat here, and that is of, of course we're talking about you know this uh, the average organism mm-hmm. in this sense, the average elephant, the average mouse, mm-hmm. uh, the average tree, mm-hmm. the average uh, cell, and mm-hmm. so on. So uh, we're looking at average kinds of quantities. And what we see is a systematic regularity in the way all of life seems to obey these very simple kinds of scaling laws. Um, And they seem very arcane from the outside, but they're extraordinarily simple. And consistent. Now, I'm going to keep referring back to the old surface area to volume ratio
0: because it's so simple and it relies only on sort of grade school geometry. In that case, we saw that this basic scaling rule that the surface area grows at a much slower rate than does the volume of an object as it gets bigger. um, That's a result of basic Euclidean geometry. So this other scaling law that you're talking about that governs so many functions in biology – Uh, this quarter power scaling law, does that relate to some fundamental mathematical issue at the heart of all of these processes?
1: Yes. So the philosophy here is the following. Since one sees um, this extraordinary regularity dominated by this so-called quarter power kind of behavior, it tells you two things. It tells you, first of all, that underlying all of life must be some extraordinary constraints, that are independent and somehow supersede uh, life's extraordinary diversity and complexity. Uh, That's the first lesson. The second is that it isn't some simple, naive geometric argument Uh, because we don't see the one-third cropping mm -hmm, up. We mm -hmm. see this quarter. So the Mm -hmm. question is, where in the hell does this commonality come from and where does the quarter come from? And the work that I got involved in was to recognize... A universal property that all of life, from its very beginnings and all the way through to its most sophisticated manifestations, had to address, and that was the question of how do how do we make sure that all the individual local sites of life, like if in in us, we consist of ten to the fourteenth cells. Now, ten to the fourteenth means one, followed by 14 zeros. That number of cells is who we are. Uh, What we have to make sure, if we put all of those cells together to make a human being, is that on the average, roughly speaking, each one of those cells has to be serviced uh, efficiently and democratically. And natural selection had to address that question. In order, and it had to address it not just at the multicellular level. It actually had to address it at the most primitive level, and that is how do you distribute information, food, and energy, and resources in an efficient way across the entire system. Across the entire system, yeah. And uh, if you give it a moment's thought, you realize exactly how we, we all know exactly how natural selection solved it. It did it by evolving a bunch of hierarchically branching network systems. Our I mean, circulatory
0: thus, system, our blood vessels, our nervous exactly. system, all of these sort of highway systems that stretch throughout our body and, <clears> and uh, provide all, all of
1: what's needed to each cell. Yes, indeed. And the idea that uh, myself and, my, and uh, two of my colleagues, uh, a man named James Brown, who's a very distinguished ecologist. Of, at the University of New uh, Mexico. The, he's the, he had just moved to the, New Me- the University of New Mexico as I was getting involved in this, and uh, and his what was then his student Brian Inquest, who is now himself a, uh, a very established ecologist uh, at the University of Arizona, uh, we proposed the following: that underlying these scaling laws <clears throat> are the universal properties of these networks.
0: So, what is it about <clears throat> these networks that is governed by? these scaling laws
1: well i would put it the other way round okay namely it is the networks that are giving rise to the scaling laws i see the scaling laws are a consequence of the properties of the network what, is the, what are so these properties so let me tell you a little bit about the properties <laughs> indeed good leading question <laughs> so these properties have to be Bigger than mm-hmm. the explicit evolved design. Whether you're a mammal, an insect, a bird, a fish, a, plant. a crustacean, a plant. Plants have a um, completely different Yeah, plants have circulatory systems too. Yes, but they do not have. So, for example, this is a very good example. So here we are. Think of our circulatory system. It's driven by a beating heart. Um, so it's a pulsatile kind mm-hmm. of system. But a tree, mm-hmm. of course, is not pulsatile. Mm-hmm. And in fact, not only that, we are a bunch of pipes, kind of plumbing, if you yeah. like, our circulatory system. But a tree is not like that. It looks like it's a branching network, and it is. But it's, in fact, a bunch of fibers joined together, technically called xylem and phloem, that um, transport uh, materials and energy and water up through the plant. So Without a heart, it's passive. Without a heart. They do yeah. it by a different, uh, a different kind of pump to do with uh, – it's still actually not a completely solved problem, but to do with the difference between pressures in the soil and the pressures in the atmosphere and so on.
0: And yet if you look at a leaf, you see veins that – Exactly. look like ours. inside us. Yes.
1: So <clears throat> the question is, um, what are the properties of networks that supersede these – vast differences. And so the ones that we came up with were the following. The first is, is called space filling. And and that means pretty much what it says. Obviously, the network, whatever it is, has to service, feed um, all parts of the organism. And so uh, these networks have tentacles that end up everywhere, like your capras. Your capras end up, um, feeding uh, all the cells of your body. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing, space filling. The second is is a very intriguing one, and that's called technically the invariance of the terminal units. So what do we mean
0: by that? Yeah, what do we mean by so that? So what
1: do we mean is the following. So let's go back to the circulatory system. The terminal units there, the last unit of your circulatory system, are capillaries. Yes, They're very, very tiny blood vessels. So tiny blood vessels that sit at the end that transmit the the, the, the the end of the network that transmits oxygen and other resources to your cells. This uh, is a
0: bit like the street in front of my home as opposed to the super highway exactly a few miles away.
1: Excellent. Perfect analogy. So if we think of mammals, we all share similar circulatory systems and we all have these capras feeding ourselves. The postulate that we made was that um, the capillaries of all mammals are the same. Why did we say that? Well, we sort of use an argument from natural selection, a sort of parsimonious argument from natural selection, that within a given taxonomic group like mammals, um, when natural selection evolved a new species from an old species, it did not act upon the fundamental units that defined that design, so it did not change capillaries. It did mm-hmm. not change the cells, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: I think evolutionary biologists would agree that evolution doesn't reinvent the wheel. No, exactly. It reuses things. It reuses
1: invented. the units that it has. So yeah. that's so there's an invariance of these terminal units of mm-hmm. the network. And here I need to make a small caveat. What I mean by it doesn't change is that relative to the very large scale from the smallest tree to the biggest tree or from the smallest mammal to the biggest mammal, capris, in the mammalian case, or the petiole, which is the technical name for the last branch of a tree, does not change, maybe more more than 20 or 30% or 50% relative to the huge change, which might be 100 million times. I see. Say from the smallest mammal to the biggest mammal,
0: It's barely scaling at all.
1: It's barely scaling relative to the huge scales Mm -hmm. over which we're looking. Mm -hmm. Now let me go back to these properties of the network. Yeah. The last, which is the most powerful and uh, maybe the most provocative in some way, and is an attempt to mathematize um, what is inherent in some ways in natural selection. And that is... The statement, and this is, I may well be controversial for an evolutionary biologist, and that is of the infinitude of possible networks uh, that are space-filling and have these invariant terminal units that could have evolved, mm-hmm. that infinitude that could have evolved, the ones that have evolved by the continuous feedback mechan- mechanisms inherent in natural selection, are the ones that, in some sense, have optimized the system.
0: And 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 I'm glad you said that because I wanted to clarify one thing. When we say that these <clears> networks <throat> are the same, are we referring to the geometry of these networks, their their um, dimensions and their branching patterns? Is that what's conserved? We
1: are. What is conserved is their branching patterns, as expressed. And this is the important point. By these postulates that I just said, okay. they have to be. We, we all are space filling. We all have um, invariant terminal units, yeah. and we all optimize. And it turns out, once you state that, it pretty much determines the nature of the network and the nature of the network that we all have to share.
0: Thus, the obvious observable similarity <clears throat> between those veins we see in the leaves of a tree yes. and the veins we will see in our own bodies and the nerve networks that we see in the brain
1: these are, to a large extent, generically generically determined by uh, these some of these very general properties of networks. Okay. These kind of mathematical, geometric, dynamical properties of networks determine a huge amount about the very structure of these networks.
0: Now, I want to get to the the implications of this for things like lifespan. Yes, well, okay. definitely want to get back to that <laughs> that huge question, but. One other technical point before we we go there. Um, You've written that in fact as a a property of these networks, living things in effect have a fourth dimension. Yes. Beyond the usual three dimensions of space we understand, that we're all familiar with, a fourth dimension. What do you mean by that? And I want to (laughs) clarify that we do not mean some mysterious spatial dimension uh, like physicists sometimes talk
1: about. No. So this one, this may take a little bit of explaining, but the mathematics that evolves from these networks that, uh, that explains all these scaling laws and gives rise to, incidentally, a, a complete mathematical theory of, say, your circuitry system, so that we can predict details for the kind of average idealized circuitry system. Um, the mathematics can actually be expressed. As if the organism, any organism, is actually living in some fourth kind of dimension. And I want to elaborate on this in wow. some way. That's where the number four comes from. <laughs> okay. And this has to do with some of the intriguing properties of objects called fractals. Because one of, this is something we haven't mentioned yet, but one of the properties that evolves from uh, these fundamental ideas of these networks is they have what uh, mathematicians and physicists call they manifest a fractal-like behavior. Fractal geometry. Fractal geometry. They have a fractal geometry.
0: And I I should say that for many listeners, they might be familiar with these uh, beautiful pictures of uh, fractals, um, particularly a function called the Mandelbrot set, which if you represent these mathematical functions graphically, produces these wonderful snowflake-like patterns. Yes.
1: So one of the properties of these networks is that if you look at them at any scale, uh, an appropriate scale, and you scale appropriately, they look the same. So that if you cut a little bit out of the network and blew it up in the right way, if someone told you what the scaling was, it would actually look just like the original network. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's in the same way that you know, if you cut a branch off of a tree that has other branches growing out of it and you removed it from a tree, it itself looks like an individual little tree. And uh, that is the property of self-similarity. Um, and so
0: where does this fourth dimension come in?
1: So the fourth dimension is a property of these kinds of fractal geometries and is intimately, re- intimately related to... Space filling, actually. And uh, the the trees that you see around us are also space filling uh, because they're trying to get as much light mm-hmm. as possible. And, and if you look at the geometry of those, what you discover is they are behaving as if they're a fourth dimension. And now I'm going to give you a kind of um, uh, some kind, I don't know, a metaphor maybe yes. of, of how one can think of how this might work. So, think of a washing machine. Now, a washing machine is a three-dimensional object. And Saturday morning, you decide to wash a bunch of sheets. Now, sheets from your bed or towels are approximately Mm two-dimensional objects. Flat. They're flat. They have very little thickness. And so, they're a very good approximation to two-dimensional objects. So, you want to be very efficient. So you take those sheets and you stuff stuff them into the tub of the washing machine so they fill all of the space as best you can. Okay? So that's the exercise that you're going to be doing. Now you do the physicist thought experiment. You're going to double the size of the washing machine, the size of the tub of the washing machine anyway. So you're going to double the volume. Right. And you're going to ask yourself. In our mind. In our mind. (laughs) We're going to double the size of the tub, double the size of the washing machine, and we're going to ask ourselves, how much more sheet can we actually wash? And we're going to measure the amount of sheet that we're going to wash by the area of the sheet. Mm -hmm. So how much more area of sheet Mm -hmm. can I wash Mm -hmm. by doing the same operation, stuffing as much inside the washing machine? And the answer is obvious. I'm going to wash twice the area. I'm going to stuff it in mm-hmm. twice as many sheets. Mm-hmm. So it just goes up linearly. Mm-hmm. goes up. So, the, the, so this is very weird. Now, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, where you talked about areas, surface areas, and volumes. You said? I said
0: that the volume goes up faster right. than the surface area, which would mean you should be able to wash more than twice as many
1: exactly. sheets. Exactly. So that's, that's weird because here we have a situation that an area, sheets, is scaling like a volume mm-hmm. as distinct from an area. And you realize why. So this has sort of violated the rules. And in fact, what it has done, it has uh, increased, if you like, the dimensionality of the sheet. The sheet, which is a two-dimensional object, is now behaving in terms of this scaling up phenomenon as if it is a three dimensional object. I get so it. it has gained, in quotes, okay. an extra dimension. I see. So the,
0: the, the key phrase here is as if. I mean, right. that is, it is behaving as if it had an added dimension. So getting back to our networks, right. they behave this way also. They do,
1: in the sense that the analog to stuffing the sheets inside the washing machine is taking your circuitry system which is has to fill all of the space inside you and stuffing it inside your skin because mm-hmm. that's effectively what has happened. Uh-huh. And in, in doing so, um, it is filling all space, and in doing so, it is gaining, in quotes, an extra dimension. It is behaving not... Just as a three dimensional object, but as if it has gained an extra dimension, a fourth dimension. It, it obeys and the mathematics of the four mathematics dimensional space. The mathematics of four dimensional space. And let me just go back to the sheets again, because, and relate it to the fract Where's the fractality in that? We talked about space filling. Yeah. The fractality, interestingly enough, is in the squishing up of the two dimensional object, the sheet, into a three dimensional. Ball, if you like, fitting inside the machine with all those crinkles and all those little spaces. You try to stuff it in, but there's lots of little spaces and crinkles. And if you look at the structure of all those little crinkles and spaces, they actually have a self-similarity. I see, which is to do with its space filling.
0: Well, laundry day will never be the same for me. <laughs> but um, now let's look at the the implications of all of this uh, this math on issues important to us, like lifespan. So you're saying that across all life forms, the sort of scaling of networks is universally covered by these scaling laws. And is that what (laughs) determines the length of our life?
1: So um, now you have this theory, you can start asking all sorts of other questions. You can ask uh, questions like the one you brought up. Does it have any bearing on lifespan? How long you sleep? You could ask questions about that. Myriad such questions. All of them related to these network all properties. To, and now I, so let me talk, since you brought up lifespan, I'll tell you. This is yes. the most. Please. This may be one of the more speculative. but uh-huh. Let me just say a few words. First of all, of course, it's intriguing since approximately lifespan scales with uh, a mass to the quarter power law.
0: So, for instance, uh, that, that tells you why a mouse lives a couple of years and an elephant lives uh, decades. Exactly. And, uh,
1: and a whale much even longer. How long well, do whales live? Whales live, well, that's, it's very hard to tell, but they certainly have been seen of the order of over 150 years. Oh, boy. And incidentally, right. they do that because uh, all sorts of kinds of observations. But one intriguing one is they have found harpoons in <sighs> whales that went into them in the middle of the 19th century. Because wow. they can trace back when they find that harpoon, they know where it was made and when. So it's quite it's quite intriguing. It's, quite a it's amusing. It's very neat amusing. technique for it dating whales. Is. So um, <laughs> uh, let me just first say a couple of words about the scaling of lifespan in terms of the data. It's actually very hard to measure lifespan because first you got to think about what is it you mean by lifespan. Mm-hmm. That is, is it the maximal lifespan an organism could live? Is it the lifespan that we observe in the wild? Is it uh, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Namely, it's very hard to do controlled experiments in a scientific way. Sure. So a lot of the data is um, um, is not controlled and is anecdotal in some ways. I mean, obviously, if you're a, a, an animal in the wild and uh, you get sick, you die. mm mm-hmm. um, I have very, I have very bad uh, eyesight. Um, my eyes, I went short sighted at about age eleven. I would almost certainly not have lived beyond uh, twelve or thirteen. In the I would not have Savannah. survived in a, exactly <laughs> as, a, as a wild mammal, you know, obviously. But let's say in zoos where we've got a so, nice control. So there are. so, yeah. But roughly speaking, so the data is, is a bit suspect. But if you just take it at face value and you average it all, all over the data, you see an exponent that is consistent with one quarter with a lot of fluctuations in it. But let's take that as given. That is extraordinarily intriguing mm-hmm. because here's that bloody quarter power again and – Maybe it's something to do with these networks. So that's our point of departure. So well, let me I assume now. You're
0: going to say it does have something to so do with these networks. So now I'm going
1: to tell you in a way in which it, I believe, it does. And it is the following: that um, the circulatory system, let's use that again as an example, is and your metabolic system is the system that keeps you alive. However, built into such systems, they are transport systems. Transport systems means that stuff is being moved. If stuff is being moved, not only the reason that you, one of the main reasons that you have to have a heart that works, pumping blood through your arteries and veins, is to counteract what is called the viscosity of blood, for example, namely the friction in the tubes. Mm -hmm. That is called dissipative. Mm -hmm. That is, you have to work against dissipative forces. Mm -hmm. Now, there are dissipative forces throughout your whole metabolic system. Some are as as engineering and mundane as viscosity, but some are quite sophisticated, like the the, um, dissipation in biochemical reactions, and uh, one that people are familiar with is oxygen radical production that comes out of uh, of, uh, metabolism. Free radicals. Free radicals. These
0: are these uh, unstable chemicals that we produce in the course of metabolism that uh, usually have a a lone electron in their outer shell. Electrons like to hang out in pairs. Free radicals have an unpaired electron, which makes them very reactive and potentially damaging to other molecules. Exactly. So the
1: point is here that they are energy that is being lost, and here's the point, and you said it, that energy is doing damage. Mm-hmm. The energy is damaging the system. Mm-hmm. And the energy is damaging it in a systematic way. We have a theory of the transport of, of, uh, the, the, through these networks. So we can calculate how much energy is being lost due to these kind of frictional, dissipative forces.
0: I think there's now, a there's a, a common phrase for this, isn't there? Wear and tear.
1: Wear and tear. Wear and tear the system. The same way your car or any other engine uh, wears out through wear and tear. The very networks that keep you alive are systematically killing you because of wear and tear. And uh, so you can work out how long it's going to take before this the the networks can actually remain uh me faithful integral and uh still be delivering the kinds of things they have to deliver to keep you alive and what you discover from these calculations is first of all the quarter power law for lifespan mm-hmm. that indeed it uh pops out very naturally and that's very nice and i think that's uh that that one is not so controvert would not be so speculative frankly um, but you can also calculate how long does it actually take, and if you do it, you discover that and this one is speculative, and I would not, i 've never published this result, but if you do the kinds of calculations that are implicit in what I said, you discover that a typical human being if you 're an organism the size with a, with a circular system like ours of uh, weighs of the order of one hundred and fifty pounds, uh, you will live um, of the order of one hundred years but you certainly will not live of the order of a thousand or a million years, and you won't live of the order of ten years.
0: eventually falls apart. But what you added, this new twist, is that it's the network's, Yes. that are primarily yes. responsible for this wear and tear. Yes, they come because with a cost.
1: Because it happens in those networks. It happens in the delivery. Primary, in fact, primarily it happens at the delivery points of these networks. Uh-huh. So it would be the analog in capillaries or at the ends of these biochemical reaction networks. They're very similar, in fact, within cells. So these are that's where the radicals that we talked about earlier actually become... Uh, damaging, actually do their damage. And because these networks
0: have a common geometry through all of life, therefore you have predictable lifespans at each Exactly. So in principle
1: you could, in principle, calculate.
0: Now, you know, if you're right about the fundamental factor in aging being the geometry of these networks and thus the way in which they damage the organism and ultimately kill the organism, um, what does that say about anti-aging therapies that people are working on. One of the most prominent these days is calorie restriction, which if you feed a mouse a lot less calories but give it complete nutrition, and I want to stress that, these mice can live a good deal longer than the average mouse. But from what you're saying, now slap me down if I'm wrong about this, they're still going to be limited by these network structures and all you're doing is playing around a little bit within the limits established by these networks.
1: Yes, roughly speaking that's correct, but the uh, caloric restriction, the the, the um, cutting back on um, the um, the food intake, is very nicely explained in this theory, because what you're doing is you're decreasing the effective metabolic rate. You're slowing the organism de- down. You're slowing it down and doing less damage. You're making a and mouse c- a little more like an elephant. Exactly. You're in a, in a some weird way, in some effective way, increasing its size. So in fact, um, you can take this little toy model that I talked about a moment ago in terms of wear and tear from the network. And you can ask, what happens if I crank down the uh, metabolic rate in that model, therefore do less wear and tear? And you find it actually gives results in um, very reasonable agreement with the kinds of data that has been done for the experiments on mice. Mm -hmm. So having said that, your question remains... What can you do to extend lifespan if that's what you want to do? What, what is it that you can do? So we have evolved with a given, on the average, for, as a human being, with the metabolic rate that we need to have, with everything sized properly, the way it ought to be according to these rules and so on and with the right kind of repair mechanisms that ensure that we have the lifespan to produce the right number of children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everything fits beautifully, so to speak. God is in his heaven and all is well. Mm -hmm. Now we want to change that, as we have done with almost everything else on this planet. We now uh, want to change lifespan. So um, we can stop eating, as I said earlier, and uh, uh, decrease wear and tear. But uh, we can ask, how do we change our repair mechanisms? Can we make them better? Um, One thing you could try to do is to start manipulating that and start putting in repair mechanisms that are actually much more efficient. And in that case, maybe one could extend lifespan. Mm -hmm. Now, from this viewpoint, so, and I'm, you know, that may well happen. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, and people have started playing around with that by doing all kinds of interesting things. with telomeres at the end of genomes and so on and so forth. But from this viewpoint, there's a kind of cautionary tale here, it seems to me. <clears throat> and that is the following. From this viewpoint, everything has evolved having the right size, the right number of heartbeats, the right size of the aorta, mm-hmm. The right size cells, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay, everything is sort of fits mm-hmm. nicely, as I said a moment ago. And now you come along and you screw around with one piece of it. Mm. That means you're going to put more energy into repair mechanisms,
0: mm. and more right. energy means uh, more it, damage.
1: More damage means all sorts of other things, mm-hmm. and, and because it means less energy into mm-hmm. other things. Mm-hmm. So one cartoon scenario. One could maybe imagine is that you manipulate genes of human beings so that a human being no longer lives just to of the order of a hundred years but can live to two hundred and fifty years now that 's going to require an extraordinary amount of energy going into repair mm-hmm. that 's like taking an a, an average Detroit automobile your Crappy old, I better not say that, There's your your classic Chevrolet, which has been designed, quote, evolved mm-hmm. to last for 100,000 miles mm-hmm. and putting in an enormous amount of energy and time into making it last a million miles, which you could sure. do. That is going to cost an absolute fortune, as you can imagine. I mean, yeah. that will cost millions of dollars yes. if you wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. So it is with us. If you wanted us to live 250 years, you're going to have to put an enormous amount of energy into it. What would the consequences be? The conse- consequences would be that uh, you would turn people into couch potatoes. <laughs> Namely, you may not have the energy to be able to walk more than a few steps. Well, you're, when- you would be exhausted most <laughs> of the time.
0: You say it, it, that, that's if the energy is coming from my own, uh, my own metabolism. Yes. However, if it's coming from the outside, if somebody's out there repairing things
1: for me, uh, I'm going well, into a clinic I think to that's very repaired. hard because you yeah. have to repair yourself. Uh-huh. So you have to repair all those cells yourself, uh-huh. and so it has to be sort of uh, auto-produced somehow. Uh-huh. It has to be internal. So that's my cartoon. My cartoon is that the it, it's the it's the it's the old problem of unintended consequences sure
0: and and not to mention the fact that not only would it take much more energy but um, you fix one thing and maybe it shifts the stress to another yeah, part to of another. the
1: system so it's it's highly non trivial and i'm very i have a very jaundiced view of people that talk cavalierly about extended lifespan i have a jaundiced view a because they don't understand the science mm. on the first hand mm. uh, you know that if you don't have a theory of aging and mortality to begin with, Mm. then um, I think it's very suspect to start talking about extending lifespan and stopping aging. And even if you did, um, I think you have to really understand the integral holistic view of an organism and recognize how incredibly balanced it is and how well-tuned it is, how finely tuned it is in the best possible sense of Mm -hmm. that. And of the extraordinary negative consequences that could happen.
0: Well, you've already said that these scaling laws that uh, that that may well apply to uh, to lifespan also apply to all kinds of other things, metabolic rate, um, the the shape of trees as they get larger. You mentioned sleep, the amount of time we no. sleep. Does that <laughs> scale with size the same way lifespan and metabolic rate do? Uh,
1: well, it does scale with size. So elephants sleep longer. No. <laughs> No. No. So this is what's interesting. Um, Oh, goodness. So sleep, interestingly, from this viewpoint, is related to aging. Because um, we, again, formulated, uh, speculated about what are the origins of sleep. And uh, we came up with the following suggestion that um, you need to sleep in order to repair the brain. And you have to distinguish here the special role of the brain from every other organ in the body. Um, We're sitting here having this very interesting conversation, and um, while we're doing it, neither of us are moving very much, and no doubt as we're doing it, I'm repairing all sorts of things Mm -hmm. inside my body Mm -hmm. in the way I just described. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to be repairing your brain while you're trying to use it. And this is the point, very simple Ah. point. That the brain is a special organ because it controls everything else. And if you do damage to the brain, which we are doing, Mm -hmm. obviously by the fact that blood is flowing through it, we're thinking, we're doing, we're moving every thought, everything we do is moving molecules Mm -hmm. around. We are doing damage. That damage must be repaired. So uh, sleep, especially deep
0: sleep, is like closing up shop for some
1: housekeeping. Exactly, because you don't need to close up shop to repair your liver, but you do need to close up shop to repair the brain and to process, Mm -hmm. process all of the stuff that is going on, put it in the various places that it has to go, et cetera, to have that kind of image, that kind of bookkeeping image.
0: So how does this scale?
1: So here's the interesting thing is that there is another aspect to the brain that distinguishes it from every other organ. Not only do we have to have a downtime to repair it, namely sleep, but you have to repair the brain faithfully. Mm. You have to make sure that when you do that repair during the night, during this downtime, when you reawaken – that you're the same person that you were the night before. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because otherwise you will morph very slowly but surely into someone else.
0: Oh, I've hoped for that sometimes. And
1: sometimes we want to do that. (laughs) Exactly. We do. And indeed, no doubt we do in some way. But I mean in a serious, significant way that we have no, quote, control over. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. That's Mm -hmm. the basic idea. So you have to have that the repair rates, the repair, the energy that you put into repair has to be, balance by, it has to balance the damage. And if you express that mathematically, you discover something very intriguing, that the bigger you are, the less sleep you need. That so goes the opposite way to everything else. Mm-hmm. That is that an elephant needs less sleep than a mouse. Mm-hmm. And indeed, I have an amusing story with this. When we first worked this out, I did it with a young... Uh, a uh, postdoc, postdoctoral fellow working with me, a man named Van Savage, who's now at Harvard. When we did this, I remember we we um, I, I was working it out on a board in my office, and I derived this scaling law, which has a curious exponent, incidentally. It's not a quarter. It's actually closer to a sixth. And that's to do with a different question to do with the scaling of the brain itself. But when I worked this out on the board and I discovered that this this scaling law, um, I put in the numbers and I discovered that uh, the elephant should only be sleeping for three to four hours. And I got very depressed because I said, <laughs> this cannot be right. How can something always <laughs> sleep for three hours a night? doesn't make any sense. And I went home very depressed. And... Uh, Van called me up that night at home and said, hey, guess what? I've been looking at data, and an elephant does only sleep for three to four hours. So it was, it was really a very, very nice feeling.
0: Just quickly, why, why do you need less sleep when you're bigger? Yes.
1: So let me explain that um, very roughly. So we said the metabolic rate increases the three-quarters power, less mm-hmm. than linearly. Mm-hmm. That was to do with the efficiency of the system. Right. Um, manifesting itself as the efficiency. Um, what that says is that per unit mass, per gram, the metabolic rate decreases with size. That's another statement of efficiency. Mm-hmm. So the bigger you are, you need less metabolism mm-hmm. per unit gram. Mm-hmm. But that means you do less damage per unit gram. Ah. So per unit gram you do less damage and it is that decrease of damage with size per unit of tissue that actually ends up meaning that you need less sleep for uh, as you get bigger
0: if sleep is going into the shop for repairs the bigger you are the less damage to repair the quicker exactly the quicker it can per gram now you have taken these scaling concepts and applied them not only to individual living things as we've been talking about in this conversation but to relationships between individual things social systems yes. cities yes. economies
1: not yet not beginning yet. beginning but Maybe. certainly but uh, the moment cities
0: but you're definitely bent on world domination with this idea
1: <laughs> <laughs> now please no no don't uh, <laughs> no but it's it's like any idea one has you know if it has a little bit of success uh, uh, and and it and and in this particular case, it has a kind of generic mm-hmm. features to it, you, uh, almost universal features. Uh, some of which may be right, some wrong. Uh, but when you have success. You want to explore its boundaries and sure. see where where can it go, what sure. else, and and, very,
0: and how do, would these ideas apply, let's say, to to a city?
1: So it was very natural to apply it to cities because cities are clearly networks and mm-hmm. cities
0: roadways, uh, uh, telephone networks, electrical on. grids. Yeah.
1: So it's obvious that they are like that. It's mm-hmm. very natural to think of them that way, and one can ask the question: actually, is a city a great big organism? Mm-hmm. So a city, after all. Um, cities grew out of biology. We we made them Mm -hmm. and we come from biology. So the question is, are they actually biological? Mm -hmm. So going back to the biology for a moment, what did that tell us? That told us that just if we look only at mammals, that despite appearances, a whale is a blown up elephant, is Mm -hmm. a blown up giraffe, is a Mm -hmm. blown up human being, uh, a blown up which is a blown up monkey which is a blown up rat which is a blown up mouse mm-hmm. despite their differences meaning that in 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 some kind of average sense to a large extent mm-hmm. they actually we are all scaled versions of each other the
0: mathematics remains the same
1: so the question is is there a similar kind of phenomenon with cities that is is new york a scaled up detroit which is a scaled up uh, Boise, Idaho, which is a scaled up Santa Cruz, mm-hmm. which is a scaled up Santa Fe, do they in fact obey or constrained by universal dynamics? Well, I'm on the edge of my seat. So are the they? first thing that we did was indeed to first collect data and ask the question, are there scaling laws? So, and this is not me, I put together a team of, uh, a very interesting team, this really goes to the heart of uh, what the Santa Fe Institute is about, a highly Cross disciplinary team of people, urban geographers, economists, physicists, biologists, mathematicians, who are interested in this problem um, to start attacking it. And some of those people have great expertise in the data, got together the data on things on multiple characteristics of cities. The ones we mentioned roadways, networks, etc., mm-hmm. number of colleges, uh, number of patents being produced. Um, Number of hospitals, number of doctors, amount of taxes paid, number of police, amount of crime, the spread of AIDS, everything you could think of where there was data. Plotted them versus population of cities. Okay. In the same way that we did for animals. And what did we discover? That to a good approximation, cities are just scaled versions of themselves. And we looked at data in the United States, in Europe and in China primarily. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that they were just like animals; they were they satisfied scaling laws.
0: So things like crime rate, number yes. of patents issued, taxation, number of police—these are predictable on the basis of the size of a city. Yes, they are. Roughly, even though Detroit so, well, has be, a the, huge crime rates
1: and uh, well, that's the question. Does it? <laughs> so here's the point: the first thing to um, appreciate is unlike biology, there was no absolute universal like the quarter power. Mm -hmm. However, there was a very intriguing universality that did emerge, and that was the universality that was exposed when you looked at quantities that are infrastructural relative to quantities that are truly social. And the infrastructural qualities are the ones we talked about, roads, electrical lines and so on, which are like sort of biology. They're the kinds of things we see clear analogs to inside ourselves. And those scale sort of like we do with an economy of scale. uh, The bigger you are, you need less roadways per capita. You need less water per capita and so on. However, what we discovered was that for purely social quantities, quantities that have no analog Mm -hmm. in biology, like patents, like uh, police, mm-hmm. like taxes, like wages, mm-hmm. those scaled in a, in a way that was never manifested in um, in in biology, and they scaled with exponents that were greater than one. The analog to three quarters was now a number bigger than one. And what does that mean? That means that let's think of patents. The bigger that you the bigger mm-hmm. you are, the more patents you get per capita. The bigger you are, the higher the wages are per capita. The bigger you are, the more colleges you have per capita. There's so this was p- perhaps opposite. perhaps
0: some synergy that happens when you get enough people together.
1: Exactly. So by bringing people together, you create more wealth, you create greater innovation, and so on and so forth. And, that's w- and, and what was extraordinary was that all of the quantities representative of social behavior, whether they're patents... Colleges, hospitals, wages, etc., all scaled in the same way. And intriguingly, they scaled in the same way as the amount of crime, the amount of disease, and the amount of pollution. Which all go up Which disproportionately. All go, but they all go up in the same way, but disproportionately mm-hmm. with size, mm-hmm. so that one can then talk about an average idealized city. And say, for a, go, now going back to your question, for a city of a given size, this is how much crime we expect. This is how, much, how many patents it ought to be producing. This is how many police it ought to have. This is how many cases of AIDS it ought to have, all relative to a scaling baseline. And in fact, one of the intriguing things we've done is we've looked at cities across the United States and ranked them according to whether they're slightly better or slightly worse than what they should be doing, given their size. Mm -hmm. What we believe underlies this, as it does in biology, are networks, Mm -hmm. are the networks of social interactions that connect us all and connect the various um, groups that we are part of, Mm -hmm. that is, uh, to varying degrees, whether Mm -hmm. it be at the uh, primal level of family up to our um, uh, up to the level of community, up to the level of country, and in, and everything in between. But
0: social networks, social networks
1: that underlie all this, and it is the dynamics of those social networks that is being expressed in these scaling laws, and um, that is again a major area of research that we're embarked on now, is so understanding I'm, those.
0: So I'm sure uh, many listeners are now asking, is this just a description of the way it is and will always be, which is important, or Is there a practical consequence to this such that we can better plan, better organize, better build?
1: Now, if you think about all the problems that we're facing from global warming environment all the way through to um, uh, the sustainability of financial markets, um, we realize where, where are all these problems coming from? All of the problems we're facing have been generated by the urban experience. And they have all been generated only, really, in the last, at best, 200 years. And probably most of the serious aspects of them in the, just in the last century, and maybe only in the last 50 years. And they're on an exponential rise. They're generated from cities. But the solution is gener- going to be generated in cities. Because the wealth creation, the innovation and the creativity are in cities. And so cities are the problem and they're also the solution and if we are to deal with this question we better understand it and we better understand the understand what a city is, what its dynamics is and we better understand it in a quantitative, predictive, mathematical framework if we're going to come to grips with some of these big long-term as well as possibly even some of the short-term, but certainly our longer-term problems if we're thinking of scales of 50 to 100 years. We better understand it because if we don't, we're not going to be able to solve it.
0: Final question. Knowing what you know or believe about scaling throughout biological life, do you think a mouse in its couple of years Lives as full a life as the bigger, slower elephant in
1: its 60 years. Yes, this is a very interesting kind of (laughs) psycho-philosophical question. And and what you're referring to, of course, is that, as I said earlier, um, since these scaling laws uh, have a universal quality to them, both across all organisms but also within an organism, the complete pace of life of any... Anything that is happening within an, an, a mammal, let's take, since that's what you talked about, within a mammal, in terms of its whole life history, everything is sort of geared in the same way. It is extremely intriguing to think that maybe in, in some experiential sense, it feels that it's lived as long as we have. Um, obviously, that's not an answer, not, not a question one can answer. The only thing I would say to that is that indeed, even though everything is tuned to scale, roughly speaking, according to these laws, there is an absolute out there, namely the length of a day and the length of a year, and we're all subject to that. So given that, um, it's, um, uh, you know, I do feel that there is, uh, it's probably not true that a mouse, I mean, whatever this means, that a mouse experiences life as long as we do. Ah, uh,
0: but, but a mouse day is so full and exactly. so long. Exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> and it is. And it's moving.
1: It's, it's doing so much more in that one day than we do in our day in some real sense. It is, really is. It's processing much more. It's metabolizing more, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Anyway, it's an intriguing thought.
0: Well, Jeffrey West, this has been a very full part of a day, and I really appreciate your uh, spending this time with
1: me. That's a pleasure. A real pleasure. Thank you, Robert.
0: Jeffrey West is president of the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And a final note. Some of you astute listeners may have caught what seemed to be a discrepancy in our discussion. If bigger beasts live longer, as Jeffrey West proposes... Then how come humans often outlast elephants, hippos, and the like? Well, West says it's because of modern medicine and other technological interventions, reducing human mortality and pushing our average lifespan ever closer to our maximum lifespan of about 100 years or so. If elephants and hippos had access to the same resources we do, they'd be dancing on our graves, in theory at least. Okay, you say. So what about those centenarian tortoises and long-lived lobsters we've heard about? They don't seem to fit the picture either. Ah, but these are cold-blooded animals, and to compare them to mammals, you have to factor in body temperature. When you do compensate for temperature, all of these creatures fall nicely into line with West's master equations. So there. And an addendum to that addendum. I said Jeffrey West was president of the Santa Fe Institute, and he was when I recorded that, but he's since finished his term and has returned to his work as a full-time researcher and professor at the Institute. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the Seventh Avenue Project. Stay tuned for the Latin Quarter. That's coming up next from 1 to 3 p.m. right here on KUSP. (music)